Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. These brothers have some Bibles. You'll need one to follow along. So as they make their way to the back, just get their attention. If you need a Bible, the Bible's marked for you at the passage in 1 Thessalonians. And you can keep that Bible as our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to have a fairly lengthy introduction. And then we'll look at the outline that's inserted in your program, as is the case every week. If you don't have that outline out as yet, I encourage you to take that out so that you can follow along when we get to that. If you've ever found yourself without a church home and on a quest to find one, then you know how difficult that can be. In fact, some of you may be here today on that very journey. What I hear from those who've had that sad experience is that it's eye-opening and often demoralizing as they see what passes for church in today's evangelical world. One of the factors that makes it so difficult for folks to settle on a church is that they really have little objective criteria on which to make a decision. Instead, for most of us, it's vague, subjective, experiential issues, as most people just decide based on whether they felt it. Was there anything in their visit that just jumped out and grabbed them? Was the music upbeat and at the same time moving? Was the preacher motivational? Was he funny? It's hard enough for one individual to decide, but if there are more than one person in the family and therefore Involved in that search, you have double or triple or quadruple or more difficulty coming to a consensus. So after the 20th church visit, a couple gets in the car and asks each other, as they have 19 other times, so what did you think? And then each shares their ill-defined impressions. And once again, they can't agree that this is the place. They've often agreed on what's not the place. Other times, one thinks it's okay, but the other does not. But they've never been able to find the place where both are comfortable, and on it goes. Now, this issue of shopping for a church, like you shop for a house, has been spoofed by comedian John Christ. I don't do this often. In fact, maybe we've done this one other time, but I'm going to show you a clip. It's going to take about four and a half minutes of church hunters to show you that spoof of how church hunting goes. Nick and Molly just moved to the city and can't agree on what they want. They are young and energetic and looking for a new church home. We'll take some personality tests, tour the sites, ask some questions, and based on taste, experience, and location, we'll find them the perfect congregation. I'm Corey Clark, and welcome to Church Hunters. We're so excited to find a church. We just started dating. Um, with the churches we go to now, just not, like, for us, just not really doing it for us, you know? Right. I, I go to a satellite campus. I just find it hard to connect emotionally with a video screen. It's just... Okay, you cry during Cake Boss. 
So, like, we've been doing a lot of services online, a lot of podcasts. There are a lot of preachers we do like. Really good. But we want we want serious yet funny. Yeah, like commanding of the stage yet relatable, you mm-hmm. know? We're more looking for uh, the humor of Andy Stanley with the body of Stephen Furtick. Hey, guys. What's happening? I'm Corey. Good to see you. My name's Nick. This hey, is Molly. Molly. Hey, guys. Welcome to Church Hunters. This is your first church. This is Creekside First Baptist. So while it is traditional, it's still pretty current. Just okay. this year, the pastor started untucking his shirts. Oh, Ooh, wow. that's good. Big deal. He does dress his age, though, so don't worry. He's past the Osteen suit phase, but he hasn't gone full Giglio yet. Okay, oh. so there's holes in the knees or no? Well, it's frayed, but no holes. Frayed, oh. no. Okay, got it. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So, hey, let me show you around. Okay, right, let's come on. do it. I do love this lobby. It's yeah. a great lobby. You know, yeah. it's not too big, not too small. Yeah. It should be enough room to catch up, chat with your friends. But here's a great thing. There's a bunch of side exits, so if you need to leave early and catch the game, you can do that. Got it. Yes. Honestly, right up front, uh, didn't love the name. No, I, First Baptist? Who names a church that anymore? I just... Not these days. We're looking no. for like a Thrive Church, maybe Relevant Church, I don't know, Radiant Church, something. This is the soundboard they use here. Okay. Now remember, it's pretty traditional here. So when Sunday comes around, they turn it way down low. Got it, <laughs> yeah. But the one knock on this church, they still use the child care numbering system on the screens. Ooh, oh. for the... Yeah. Or as the moms like to call it, the Sanctuary Walk of Shame. Yeah. <laughs> The Sunday morning experience was just a little too traditional for us. For us. us. I mean, the pastor's main point, 157 characters. I can't tweet that. I really think you guys are going to love this place. I like we it. We do. We like Feels it. Yeah. You know, it's diverse, but it's not, like, too diverse, you know? Scripture-heavy sermons? Oh, or, yeah. yeah. Yeah? What about, uh, is it community-oriented? Absolutely. Great. Oh, women in ministry? The parking situation, you guys got to see it. Super rare nowadays. Come with me. There's like a a maybe for when my parents come into town for a church for Christmas, Easter type of church. Like a holiday Holiday type church. One of the main reasons that I love this church for you guys is that on your personality test, Molly, you scored high in service and hospitality. Oh, babe. And there's a great welcome team you could join. Perfect. And then Nick, you scored really high in need for accountability. Wow. And the men's groups here are amazing. You're just going to put that out there? Hey, God knows your heart, okay? On the next episode of Church Hunters. I think you're really going to love this place. They take relevance to a whole new level. This church identifies as interdenominational. This pastor speaks out of a brand new translation. It's the Tumblr Bible. Previously on Church Hunters. This is your first church. This is Creekside First Baptist. Honestly, right up front, uh, didn't love the name. The Sunday morning experience was just a little too traditional. Hey guys, how we doing? Hey, good. Doing how are good, you? doing good. So I know you didn't love the traditional vibe of the last place, okay? Yeah. okay. But I think this church is really going to do it for you. Yeah. It takes relevance to a whole new level. Behind me, you will see molded clay, jar art, tapestry, canvas, mosaic wow. church. Mm, I love beautiful. it. Right? So you've heard of interdenominational. Mm-hmm. Right. And you've heard of non-denominational. Mm-hmm. Well, this church identifies as interdenominational. Wow, that's that's perfect for us. It. it really is. But here's the kicker. A lot of celebrities go here. Yeah. What? Jeff Foxworthy. Oh, we love him. Yep. We really do. Ben Higgins from ABC's The Bachelor. Perfect. Several Real Housewives. Ooh, and know. Usher even came here one time. <laughs> yeah. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, wow. well, follow me. Come on. Let's do it. So refreshing. Honestly, that last church was just way too traditional. It was yeah. too much. It was like we left there feeling convicted. Like, oh. ugh. Right? Right. We're just, we're looking for more of a Tony Robbins type stuff. Like inspiration, like a TED Talk with a Bible verse. Yes. Oh, yes. Right?
Well, let's see. Uh, we have ushers. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're new here today, you've undoubtedly already recognized that we are decidedly uncool. <laughs> when I wear jeans, I prefer they're completely intact. I don't care much about tweetable statements, but we are cool enough not to have the sanctuary walk of shame. For you parents of little ones, we have a new pager system. And if anybody here says I have an Osteen suit, I'll call security and have them take you out back and shoot you. Now, as I said, it's hard for two people to agree, especially when the evaluation is based on vague criteria. And then if you have children, the determination may well be made by what they say on the van ride home. The parents ask the kids what they thought, and they hear the fatal words, boring. Because of the dreaded boredom verdict, churches that market themselves to the tastes of the culture think they have to compete with all the excitement that children's parents have exposed them to all week. That's just a game that the church will ultimately lose because it simply cannot keep up. And the church shopping venture is not only difficult because there's little or no solid basis for making a decision, but also because of the ubiquity of outside media ministries, which means that many are comparing consciously or unconsciously, like we saw in the video clip. They're comparing what they see and hear at church with what they see and hear via social media, at conferences, what they read in the latest book that was marketed to them, probably by someone who hosts a conference that they went to. The truth is, many of you have come here today after imbibing all week your favorite media musicians and preachers. You've bought their stuff, you've attended their stuff, recommended their stuff, and it's hard not to compare and criticize. Now, just as an aside, it's all good to listen to stuff and read stuff. We, we recommend that. We have a resource center with stuff that we recommend you read. And I've attended dozens of conferences over the years, including before I was a pastor. But I'm glad that I learned in all of that to differentiate what I saw at a conference from what I should expect at church, even when the conference is hosted by a church. When I attend those, if I get one helpful thing out of it, then my time was probably worth it. And if I get two, I consider it a great investment. But I really don't expect much, and I certainly don't suffer from the illusion that this is what church life should be when I'm at a conference. You see, one of the things that all the media ministries have in common is marketing. The reason we're at the conference is because someone has carefully marketed his or herself to us. Often we think their ministries are large and impressive because they're specially gifted in ways that local, smaller church leaders are not. And of course, that's true in some, perhaps many cases. But the real difference is intentional marketing. The truth is, you'd probably have never heard of them if it weren't for that. So I recommend you do what I've done for years. And get what you can from what you read and attend, but do not make the mistake of thinking that this is what church life was meant to be. You'll be doing yourself a favor if you approach it that way. And honestly, you'll be doing your church's leadership a favor as well. In today's church, pastors get inundated with requests to look into the discoveries of their flocks 
on what they've been listening to, attending, and reading. And then it's a very short step from the almost hero worship that many engage in to then put pastors in the position of defending what they do against someone who's not even in the room, not even in their town. That author, that media preacher, that conference host that takes time and energy away from the direction that the leadership believes the church should go. I'll let you in on what is only a secret to those who don't know much church history. This thing that you think is new is not. It's been done at different times and in different ways by others going back literally centuries and even to biblical times. But to those who know little church history, everything seems new and exciting and they go from one fad to another. And that's why young people are especially susceptible to making unfavorable comparisons between their favorite parachurch ministry and their own church. In 2010, I attended a conference at a large church at which I received much helpful information for which I was very grateful. One of the things that impressed me most was at the end, the conference host told the pastors assembled there to be careful with what they say when they go back to their home churches. He warned against going back and talking about how great so-and-so's church is. He likened it to a husband coming home from work and always talking up to his wife how great a female co-worker is. How would your wife feel? And I've always tried to do that myself. Get what I can from others. Implement what might be helpful, but always remembering and being grateful for the local church, which is God's instrument for advancing his work. Friends, the local church, churches like this one, are called in Scripture God's household. Do we have that? The church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. When Paul gives his panoramic view of History, going back to eternity past in the first three chapters of Ephesians. He gives what God's intent for the present age is now, and he includes the church as central to that when he says God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. So if the church is that important, And if we need better criteria than just how did it grab me or how does it compare to my favorite marketed Christian ministry? Then how do we evaluate church? How do we determine a good church from a not so good or bad church? I'd suggest that the first place to begin is where we should always begin. Where we should always begin with everything, namely with God. History itself begins with God. The church begins with God. God has written about the church extensively. In fact, the church is God's idea, so he knows best what it should be. That's why I've titled this new series in the book of 1 Thessalonians, What God Looks For in a Church. You see, people have these vague notions about what they're looking for in a church. But what does God look for in a church? For myself, as I decide what I think our church should do and then propose that to our leadership team, I consult three sources. 
The first and by far most important is scripture, and then history, and then culture in that order. It all starts with what God says in his word, which is what we're going to cover over the next several weeks in this series. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we begin that quest. Our Father, we thank you for gathering us. Thank you for allowing us to focus our minds upon this extremely important issue to you and therefore to us. What your church is, what it should be, how it should carry out your work. Lord, you have not left us to wonder, to guess about that. You have given us instruction in your word about these things, so help us to be your attentive people and your obedient people. And over these next several weeks, we ask you to grant us clarity for what kind of church we should be. We want to be the kind of church that you, our God, looks for. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we look at what a church should be, then yes, we look at the Bible, but why this particular book of the Bible? Why First Thessalonians in particular? Well, it's because it's the only church in the New Testament that is explicitly said to be a model church. You have open to First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. You became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, they were a model of how to advance God's work, God's mission in his world through the church. This morning, we want to see what that mission is, how the church in the city of Thessalonica became part of it, and how they serve as a model for what we need to be about. In verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, you see the first person mentioned is the one who wrote this book of 1 Thessalonians. You see it there, Paul. And so I say in the outline that you should have in front of you, First of all, the biblical mission requires church planters, church planters. Paul was a church planter. That is, he started new churches, and one of those was this Thessalonian church. He did that because planting churches is integral to the mission of Christ. And to see that, we need to review some events that took place before this church was started and before this book of 1 Thessalonians was written. Now, most of you know the story of how Paul was miraculously converted to Christ while he was on his way to persecute the church. Jesus himself selected Paul to spread his mission. So what is that mission? Well, many of us know it as the Great Commission, and we're familiar with it from Matthew chapter 28. Jesus said, after he had walked the earth, taught, healed, died on the cross, raised from the dead. Now he's giving final instructions to his first followers. And he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And notice I have baptizing emphasized there. I want you to remember that word. We'll come back to it in just a bit in an important passage. Baptizing. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. The Great Commission is Jesus' final instruction before he ascended to heaven. And then that Great Commission is restated at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Not only at the end of Matthew, these are the last words of the Gospel of Matthew, but also in the last words of the Gospel of Luke. 
Luke records Jesus as saying this, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And Jesus said to those first followers, stay in the city that is Jerusalem until you have been clothed with power from on a high. Now I have emphasized there repentance and the phrase forgiveness of sins. So baptizing, repentance, forgiveness of sins. Remember those three. Luke wrote a second book in your New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he wrote the book that we call the book of Acts. In fact, Acts simply picks up the story where Luke left off in the final chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24. And he picks up to tell us how the mission of Jesus did indeed go forward. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he repeats Jesus' final words to his first followers. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses. It's going to start in Jerusalem. That's why he told them to wait there. And then it's going to expand to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's going to go to all nations. In chapter 2 of the book of Acts, we find the apostles doing as Jesus had commanded earlier. They were waiting in the city of Jerusalem for that promised power to begin to carry out the mission. And the Bible tells us there that the Holy Spirit did come in power in a miraculous way. And then Peter, one of the chosen apostles, stands up and he preaches the first Christian sermon in Acts chapter 2. When he finishes that sermon, the people respond by saying, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent. You see that word? We've seen that earlier, haven't we? In Luke 24. Repentance will be proclaimed, Jesus said. And be baptized. We saw that in Matthew chapter 28. And then do that every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Just as a quick aside, when it says for the forgiveness of your sins, it's not be baptized so your sins can be forgiven. That Greek preposition for can be used to mean because of. Be baptized because your sins have been forgiven. But notice that third phrase, forgiveness of sins. We saw that in Luke chapter 24 as well. All three of those elements, repentance, baptism, forgiveness of sins in this one verse. This is the beginning of the great commission that Jesus says they were to found. But importantly, it's not only the beginning of the Great Commission, it's also the beginning of the church. And as you read through the other 27 now chapters of the book of Acts, there are 28 chapters in it. The rest of the book of Acts is the spread of the mission by establishing churches. And one of those was in a city called Thessalonica, started by Paul. And as you read from Acts chapter 13 on, you find the central character being Paul, whom Jesus had personally called to spread his mission, especially to the Gentiles, and to do that through the establishment of churches in city after city. Now, it's because of this connection between the Great Commission and church planting that one author has defined the biblical mission this way. The primary mission of the church... And therefore of the church is, of the church, capital C, and therefore of the church is, its local expressions like this one. The primary mission of the church and therefore of the church is, is to proclaim the gospel of Christ, 
gather believers into local visible churches where they can be built up in the faith and made effective in service, thereby planting new congregations throughout the world. Now, I want you to note how serious Paul was about carrying out that mission. In the year in which he founded the church in Thessalonica, he traveled 75 days, logging 2,000 miles, visiting 16 cities, establishing and visiting at least five churches, was imprisoned, and he was hounded out of some towns. Of those hardships, he wrote this. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. He went on to say, we're genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. The biblical mission is about seeing the advance of God's work in his world through churches. And Paul was a planter. He planted churches. And now the letters of your New Testament, many of those are letters written back to those churches like this one in the city of Thessalonica that Paul had planted. The biblical mission requires a church planter. And I say in your outline, it requires a core team. Verse 1, again, Paul. But then there's Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. As Paul traveled, he added to his entourage and two of the most important of those were Silas and Timothy. He didn't just add anyone to his company, but rather only those who were committed He fully expected that all God's people should give all they can to the mission. In fact, he famously left Mark behind for his Paul's second missionary journey, and he chose to take Silas instead because Mark was not yet fully committed in Paul's mind, so he replaced him with Silas. So who is Silas? We know that he was a faithful, reliable comrade in ministry because we're introduced to him as one chosen by a church council to carry out an important task in Acts chapter 15. He was later associated with the ministry of the Apostle Peter. And then there's Timothy. Timothy is a special companion of Paul's, whom he called his son in the faith. So loyal and committed was Timothy that Paul said of him, I have no one else like Timothy, who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Three men fully devoted to the biblical mission. Their lives exemplify a camaraderie because they were together working at a task larger than themselves individually. They found their fellowship in the work of the Lord. Now, friends, this zeal that the early church possessed for the biblical mission is, I must say, almost absent in many American churches. 
We find our common bond around our interests, sports, occupation, homes, family. But too rarely do we speak to and encourage one another in the cause. If Community Bible Church is going to be the kind of church that God wants, then we need to be a people with a sense of mission to which we are all wholly, fully committed. Now, the thing for which we work, around which we fellowship, and upon which our unity rests, then is to be our work together to see the gospel expand through a strategy of ultimately planting other churches. This church exists because another church faithfully followed that very pattern. This church was planted because Huron Baptist Church in Flat Rock, our parent church, saw that this is the way the mission expands and commissioned us to start this church some years ago. The biblical mission requires a church planter. It requires a core team and, in your outline, a clear plan. The New Testament records the advance of the biblical mission through the establishment of churches in places like Antioch and Philippi and Ephesus and Corinth and Rome and Thessalonica, All of these have in common that they were important, large commercial centers from which the gospel could go forth rapidly. Now, have you ever considered that? As you read through the book of Acts and you see the itinerary that the church planter Paul put together, it was an intentional itinerary to go to commercial centers strategically so that the gospel could go out from those commercial centers into other places. So he didn't just wake up one day and decide, I think I'll go there. He actually thought through where he was going to go and why. And he would go to these commercial centers. In the case of Thessalonica, it was the capital of a Roman province. It was a city of 200,000. It was an important port city and it was a commercial sea route. And it was one of the cities on the famous Ignatian Way that connected by land the city of Rome in the west with what is presently Istanbul, Turkey. And Thessalonica was right on that route. And so it shows that Paul's ministry was intentional, strategic, and planned. It didn't just happen. So for us, we'll plan and we will strategize as we do every year at our servant seminars, which this year... You might mark are on March 24 and 25, a Saturday and Sunday. The biblical mission requires a church planter, a core team, clear plan, and lastly, a committed congregation. Verse 2. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Paul thanked God. For his co-laborers, we thank God for the co-laborers that he gives, because although we can encourage folks to be committed, the truth is only God can actually produce that commitment in people. And so we thank him when he does so. And thankfully, he still does that. And thankfully, he has done that in this church with so very many of you for whom I am always thankful But it's indispensable to have such people because since the biblical mission is nothing other than the great commission given by Christ, it means then it's not only Paul's mission or the mission of a few Green Beret select Christians, but it's all of ours as well. 
Now, granted, Paul had a special role. But we common folk are each called to play our part in seeing God's work go forward. If you need any proof of that, just look at the benedictions at the end of many of Paul's letters in the New Testament, in which he mentions his many partners, many of whom are just regular people serving in churches. So when I talk about the benedictions, I'm talking about the end of letters like Rome and 1 Corinthians and Colossians. And then he says, greet so-and-so, and he makes some kind of commendation very often for who those people are. Here are just a few examples. At the end of the letter to the church at Rome, he says, Priscilla and Aquila are my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Greet also the church that meets at their house. This faithful couple had a church meeting in their home. Apelles, who, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, just a guy with a regular job. But he's helping out in the mission in important ways. Or at the end of the letter to the Corinthian church, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus supplied what was needed for our ministry. At the end of the Colossian letter, Epaphras is always wrestling in prayer for you. He mentions Nympha has a church in her house as well. Verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 notes then three things for which Paul is specifically thankful in the lives of these co-workers in Thessalonica. The first is this, and I have it in your outline, that they were committed to obedience. Verse 3, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. We saw last week from Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, faith works. Romans chapter 1 and verse 5 speaks of the obedience that comes from believing, from faith. But what work in particular here is Paul remembering before God, this work produced by faith? It's their work in the advance of the gospel. The Thessalonians are later commended for their financial assistance to the mission of Christ. Faith in Christ had produced works in them, just as it always does in those who are Christian. As newly redeemed bond servants of Christ, they gladly worked on behalf of the Lord Jesus. So a committed congregation is committed to obedience. I say as well, it's committed to others. Verse 3 says, we remember before God your work produced by faith, but also your labor prompted by love. The word that's translated love there is a Greek word that some of you are familiar with, agape. It refers to a sacrificial choice for the benefit of another. That's where I get that working definition of love that I've given you many times. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. The Bible says, greater love has no one than that he lay down his life for his friends. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. When it says labor of love, the word labor is not the same word as work, as in the work of faith. Work is activity. This word is hard toil on behalf of others. So love for Christ, and in turn love for others, took their works, the Thessalonian Christians' works, to a deeper level called labor. Because of Christ's sacrifice on their behalf, they now sacrificed on His behalf. And they spared nothing in their spiritual service, always working even to the point of exhaustion. 
committed church is committed to obedience, committed to others. And I say in the outline, committed to the end. Verse 3. We remember your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope used here is not a wish. I hope that something will happen but rather it's a certain expectation, a confident expectation of what is going to happen. So they're able to endure because they have this confident expectation of, in particular, the Lord's return that Paul will address later in this letter. In Titus chapter 2, it refers to something called the blessed hope. We wait for the blessed hope. What is that hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hope towards Christ's return produced the ultimate level of commitment in their endurance. They would stay with their kingdom labor on earth until their Lord and Master called them away to be with Him in heaven. They would be found at their Christ-appointed service until the end. Jesus addressed the seven churches of Asia at the beginning of the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. To the church at Ephesus, he said this, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Now, I put that on the screen because deeds, hard work, and perseverance. This is Jesus talking. Those three words are translations of the same Greek words that are given in our passage. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3. Work, labor, and endurance. But you may remember that Jesus said something else to that church at Ephesus just after he gave those words of commendation. He said, you have lost your first love. So I bring that up at the end, friends, to remind us that it's easy to get distracted and drawn away from what's most important. Is it not? The church in Ephesus did that. They were commended by Jesus in the same way that Paul had commended the Thessalonians. But then Jesus said, you've left your first love. So this message is not designed to browbeat, but it's to remind and lovingly warn, not just you, but myself as well. Our church is to be commended like that in Thessalonica for its work of faith, labor of love, endurance inspired by hope. And for the many for whom that's an accurate description Let's be reminded not to be turned away, friends. And for those here who may have been distracted, let it serve as motivation as we begin our new year. A motivation to give ourselves anew to the one who gave himself for us. Let's each commit ourselves to gospel service. If you need help in finding ministry, turn in the connection card. And on it, it says, I want to volunteer at CBC. Turn that in at the desk in the lobby, and we'll get back with you to help you with that. Friends, let's not be satisfied with ordinary or average service, as this model church in Thessalonica was not. They labored long and hard for Christ's sake, and they intended to do so as long as it pleased the Master to have them on earth. Let's do the same. And so your take-home truth is this. God has given us all a role to play in the advance of his mission, and you could add, through his church. Let's bow before the Lord.
Father, thank you for this model church and the record we have of their faithfulness, their sacrificial love, their enduring hope. Lord, help us to imitate this model church then as we carry out your mission through your church in this part of your world. Lord, your church is not something in the abstract. It is comprised of individual people committed to the Lord Jesus and his cause. So help me and help each of us in this year of 2018 to commit ourselves gladly and joyfully through work that you inspire and you energize so that we can please you by the advance of your fame and your world through your church. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.